Take your Bibles and go to the book of James, chapter 1, please. And while you're going there, Camden and Ryan, stand up both of you, would, would you please? I want you to know, as your pastor and as a church, we're really proud of you guys today. And we're proud for your families. We recognize the celebration that this is for you. And we'll be watching to see what God does with you and through you, okay? But congratulations. We're proud of you, right? All right. As we begin today, I want you to know we're continuing along the theme that James has started for us relative to the tests and the trials that we take in life. And uh, just to reiterate the fact that none of us are above tests and trials, I take you to a story that's told by John Ortberg. You may know of him, maybe have read some of his stuff. Uh, this is one of those preacher stories. It could be true. It's told it's true as far as I know, but, you know, it, it sounds too good to be true. So maybe it's true, maybe it's not. But he tells this story of a college student who was taking a class in ornithology. If you know what ornithology means, you're excused from the rest of this sermon. You don't need to stick around. It is or was a class on birds. And the professor was noted for being especially difficult and a tough tester. That is, the tests that he gave were incredibly difficult. And uh, so... This one kid went into the class knowing that he needed it to graduate, and so he buckled down and he made a determination early on that he was going to do well. And they came time for the final exam, and the reputation of the professor preceded the test so much that this guy decided, I'm going to have to study. It's a comprehensive exam, everything we've talked about in the whole semester. So much of my grade depends on how I do on this test. So he just buckled down and he put all of the effort that you ought to expect a college student to do. <clears throat> And uh, got to the test, and he was ready. And so they got in there, and the professor had them all seated, and he said, by the way, you don't need any blue books or anything like that. You just need one piece of paper, number 1 to 25, put your name at the top. And I have on the back of the wall here behind me, I have 25 photographs. They're covered up now. Uh, when I take the covering off, you're free to start taking the test. And I want you to identify the bird in the photograph. And the guy thought, man, I got this smoked. He said, I, you know, I know I got this smoked. And so the professor then turned and he started taking the covering off of those photographs. And they were 25 photographs of sets of bird feet. <laughs> identify the bird by its feet. The guy was incensed. This is not, you know, what happens in situations like that, the emotions we feel bubble through our lips sometimes. And he started just kind of talking to nobody in particular. This is not fair. I can't believe that he's doing this. There's, I'm not going to take this test. The professor overheard that. And he said to him, you don't have to take the test. But if you don't take the test, you will flunk my course. To which the guy said, fine, then just flunk me. The professor said, okay, write your name on your piece of paper, hand it in. And you're free to go. The guy said, no, sir. And he sat down on the floor. He took off his shoes and his socks. And he said, you tell me who I am based on my feet. <laughs> Sometimes the one giving the test ends up being the one 
taking the test. None of us are above the test of life. When I was coming out of my rebellion, well, it's not like I only had one in my life, but a season of rebellion in my life is about the time Teresa and I were uh, in the process of being engaged and uh, I was trying to turn back to the Lord and uh, so in the job that I had at the time, I was able to listen to the radio through the course of the day while I was selling oil field equipment. And um, the, uh, there, there came to be this on this Christian radio station a preacher that I really liked listening to. He was young, and I kind of thought he was a little bit edgy, and I liked that. And so I started listening to him, and, and over a period of time, I liked him. His dad was a preacher, so I kind of had a point of reference with that. And uh, not long after I started listening to him, I mentioned him to my mother, who at that time was probably my primary spiritual advisor. And uh, I said, I really like this guy's preaching. You ever heard of him? And she said, yeah, I've, I've heard him preach before. And I said, yeah, you, you like him? He was from the Houston area, and it wasn't that guy. Uh, but uh, he said, uh, my mom said, uh, well, you know, he's, he's an angry preacher. And it kind of stopped me in my tracks. And I said, well, what, what do you mean by that, angry? She said, well, you know, it's, it's like he's mad at the world. And he, so he just uses the Bible to beat people up when he preaches. And that stuck with me. Um, and and I, I say that to, to say this to you. As I come to these times that we have together, I come into this with a charge, I believe, to help you walk the Christian life in a real way. Uh, By definition, to do that, uh, we have to get into some things that are, it's kind of like doing surgery, you know, you got to get down to the problem in order to be able to deal with the problem. And and, and through the years, I have felt this call of pastoring and particularly preaching as a discipleship tool for all of us because we all need to further our walk with Christ. Scripture is where we find God's revealed, preserved, inspired word, and we need to get Scripture into us, and we need to walk with the Lord through that, and sometimes as we come to these times, it gets a little bit tough. Uh, lately, especially, I had somebody come to me last week and say, you know, I'm going to go invest in a pair of steel-toed boots, and uh, I said, why is that? She said, well, you're kind of getting on my toes a little bit. And you know, my, I have two responses to that. My first one is, if I'm stepping on your toes, then I missed because I'm aiming for your heart. And secondly, uh, as hard as it is for you to sit there sometimes through this for 30 minutes, or 40, or 50, whatever the time frame is, as hard as it is to sit there through it, remember, I've got to live with it all week long to get to this point. And in the back of my head, I, I still hear the words of my mom He's an angry preacher, and I don't ever want to come across that way. We are in this together. A lot of the times, then, I use stuff out of my own personal experience just to let you know I'm not doing this as if I have arrived or anything. We struggle together. Having said that, I think that I've found that I'm in good company with some great preachers. Not that I'm great, but some of those great preachers of the past have had some of this struggle, this personal trial. Charles Spurgeon, the great Baptist preachers of the 19th century, said this. By the way, Spurgeon was the one who also said, there are dungeons beneath the castles of despair. 
He struggled with depression. As great a pastor as he was and as fine a man of God as he was, he still struggled with depression. He said this, fits of depression come over most of us. Usually, cheerful as we may be, we must at intervals be cast down. The strong are not always vigorous. The wise, not always ready. The brave, not always courageous. And the joyous, not always happy. There may be here and there men of iron, but surely the rust, the rust frets even these. In other words, I think maybe what he says is that you're not exempt from the trials of life. No matter how strong you may be, no matter how much people around you may look to you as the rock in the middle of the storm, we're all prone to trials. And when we find ourselves in those trials, it is easy for us to get what my dad used to call stinking thinking. How do you view the problems in your life? How, how do, when those things come at you that take you beyond your God? What I mean by that is not that God can't handle it, but all of us have this tendency towards false gods in our lives. And so we put things in places that only God should have. And when we do that, we invariably, and usually soon after doing that, we run into the reality that my God, that God with a little g, is not big enough to handle this trial. And so then what do you do? James has been working us through some of this thinking stuff and how we approach the trials of life. So let me just kind of highlight this. He starts off in verse 2. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Well, that doesn't seem to make a whole lot of sense. It's not the way we normally think about dealing with trials. So he goes on from there and he talks more. And I'm not going to re-preach all of those. We're going to be in verse 12 here in just a few uh, minutes. But, But when we come into all of this, James gives us these truths about facing trial. Uh, as a Christian person that are not the norm for us. We, we swim upstream in a world that, well, that trouble seems to visit regularly. So in verse 12, here's what he says. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. And with this verse, James makes something of a switch. It's a hinge verse for us. In this first chapter, James has been laying out his introduction. He's laying out these different themes that he's going to develop as we work our way through his little epistle. But all of them are under this umbrella of how we face the trials of life. And he gives us this statement that doesn't seem to make a whole lot of sense. I'll talk about that in a minute. How can this person be blessed? But before we get to that, let's consider this idea. There is a difference between staying power and surrender. The whole message today is tied to the way we think about the trials that we face. Do not, please do not make the mistake of thinking that I'm up here talking about you have the power within you. If you just think it hard enough and you just claim it long enough and you'll rise above all the troubles in your life. That's not what I'm saying. Matter of fact, that's, that's almost totally opposite of what I'm saying. 
There is a difference, though, in the way we approach. Our, our mind is very important in how we come to the trials of life because usually, as we think, so we behave. Here, here's a statement for you. Let's try this on, and I'll see if I can illustrate it for you. Holding on, we got this one on the screen. Holding on requires hope for improving conditions. You know the best example of that? The idea is, if, if you know that things are going to get better or you can believe that things are going to get better, then it's easy to hope that things are going to get better. But when you can't hope that things are going to get better and the hope seems to be gone, then all of a sudden the right now becomes much harder to deal with. Case in point, really, Des and Romo are hurt at the same time? My goodness, what are we going to do? You see, there's no hope in that. (laughs) Let me give you a much more serious example. And if you don't know who Des and Romar are, if you don't know, it could be the medicine talking. If you don't know who Des and Romo are, shame on you. But there is a writer who has gained significant uh, notoriety in his late life. His name is Elie Wiesel. He was one of those Jews who were part of the Holocaust and locked away in concentration camps and uh, a, a horrific life story through those years. And in his book, simply entitled Night, where he reveals some of the things that he had to go through and the level of thinking that went into those trials. He gives this little story, this little snippet of how bad it was there and what lack of hope for improving conditions does to us in the now. One of the things that this particular concentration camp did to get into the heads of those Jewish prisoners they had was they built a gallows where everybody could see the people being executed as a point of reference to how hopeless their situation was. They went out one day and to make the story short, hanging on that gallows was the body of a young boy. The problem uh, with all the other problems inherent in that was that the boy was not of sufficient weight to make hanging a quick manner of death. And so those Jewish concentration camp prisoners were forced to see that boy on those gallows for hours and hours as he hung between life and death. And at some point in the midst of that, Someone in the group of prisoners looking on that scene captured the hopelessness of the situation by asking, where's God? The implication of the question is, how can God let this happen? Where is God that this is going on to us? Somebody else in the crowd, according to Wiesel, said this as he pointed to that boy There's God. The message being, to me, God is dying 
in this trial. I trust that none of us will ever have to see a scene like that or go through a situation of that magnitude. But the reality is that life brings to us trials that push us to hopelessness. It's possible that you're in here today and that's you. That as you sit here today, you're going through something and you're not really sure where God is in that and maybe, maybe in the back of your mind you're wondering if God even is at all because of the nature of the trial you're going through. And in the midst of that, James now says these words once again, blessed is the man who remains steadfast. There is a difference between having that staying power and just absolutely surrendering in the midst of it. And part of the answer to that is how you think about that trial. Remains steadfast, he says. The the word picture there is this one who stands girded up and ready to go. It's as the trials beat in on him, he stands his ground. I I picture for that the book of Ephesians in chapter 6, I believe, as Paul begins to close out his letter and he talks to those Christian people about putting on the full armor of God and standing against the wiles and the schemes of the devil. And in the midst of that, the last part of it, Paul says, and having done all things to stand. That's the picture here. I was watching the news this week as they reminded us locally of the 10-year anniversary of one of those hurricanes that rolled through here. And you remember those days, those of you who were here, the aftermath of that and how life changed on a grand scale. Days full of trials, kind that we don't normally even think are out there, and they come up against you, and you somehow you have to get up in the morning, okay, we're going to get through this day. That's the picture that James writes for us here. But in doing so, he urges us, I think, to swim upstream. This is not the way of the world. We are all given, I think, to frustration that can lead to a total loss of hope. This is a call, in other words, to hold on despite the circumstances. But it gives us good reason to hold on. Notice how he describes this. When I first read this, I have to tell you, when I first read it, I thought, okay, now, I'm missing something here. Because the word that I normally use when I think about a Christian going through struggles in their life is not blessed. Now, I know that we're blessed and we carry that overall blessing, the umbrella blessing of we're children of God and all that, and and I'm not diminishing that at all. But I got to tell you, in my own life, when I go through some of those trials, I don't feel too blessed. How about you? So let's be, be careful and be sure that we get what James is actually saying here and not try to put words into his mouth. It's not that the blessing itself, I mean, it's, it's not that the trial itself is the cause of the blessing. It's the remaining steadfast that causes the blessing. The word blessed here is the same word we find over the Beatitudes in Matthew chapter 5. It's the word, it's the word that means to be envied. Now, honestly, look around here. And look at what we know, I don't mean like literally right now, but look around our area and look at the people that you know, the Christian people you know, and the the trials and the struggles that they're going through. And when you look at some of the stuff that some of us are going through here, do you think, man, that's a blessed person right there. I want to be like them. 
That doesn't normally go with it for us. We, matter of fact, we specialize in prayers of relief for people like that. 90% of the prayer requests that come through any church on any given week are prayers for people to have relief from the trials. We don't look at them and say they're blessed, typically. So what's he saying? What do we miss here? What do we need to get? And it's tied all up in this view of how we think. Blessed, one more time, blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. He stands up and he's got staying power in the face of those trials. And then he goes on to say why. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life. Let's stop there for a second. And let's talk and think just a little bit about what this crown of life means. I, I I think that there are those people, I know that there are those people who would hold this out as the way that you win is that you win in the end. That's called an eschatological hope. It's it's the idea that says I'm going through this trial now and I may not win it here, but when I die, I win in heaven because I get to go be with Jesus the rest of eternity. Let me just make sure you hear me say this. Okay, That's a true statement. If you know Jesus Christ and you've committed your life to him and you trust him as your savior, when you die and when the final trial in this life finally gets you, you get to go be with him in heaven for the rest of eternity. You win. But here's my problem with that. First of all, I don't think that's what James is talking about here. Because James... um, whether, I don't know how much you want to know, so I don't usually put a lot of this stuff in these sermons, but James is one of those books that had a hard time finding its place in the New Testament, historically speaking. For that group of people in church history that were trying to decide from all these different things that had been written, which ones need to go into what we call the New Testament, there are lots of options, lots of discussions, and even to this day there are those who talk about, well, how did James make it in there? The reason, one of the reasons that James didn't have some of the credibility that some of Paul's writings did is because James is so practical in the way he writes this. He, he, he doesn't refer back to Jesus a whole lot. It's not that he's not there because Jesus is all through these letters, of, or this letter of James. But it just wasn't flagrantly uh, what you would expect. And James wrote it as a wisdom piece of letter, uh, literature that says, here's how to live. So I have a hard time thinking that James would say as the crowning argument in his live through the trials that you have, because you're going to lose now, but you win in the end. I don't think James is saying that you lose now. As a matter of fact, the crown of life that he's talking about here is in fact that one that you have in the midst of the trial. We think of a crown like in Queen Elizabeth and, you know, the British Empire and, you know, that hard metal gold, I suppose it is, crusted with jewels and worth all of this money. We think of those kind of things, King Arthur and the round table and those, you know, all of that kind of stuff. But this is Greco-Roman society. The crown that they had was just a plant, a wreath of laurel. And it was given to those at the Olympic Games not because of the value of the crown itself, but because of the honor bestowed on the person for competing and winning. It signified victory, yes, but primarily it was a badge of honor, if you will. 
So what does he mean when he says, blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life. I know that we have lots of preachers who go out and talk about all these different crowns through Scripture, and you know, you're going to wear them, and I, I envision some of these people with crowns stacked up 40 high on their heads. I think we missed the point on that. And in this one, let's hear what he says. It is a crown of life. Now, I put this on the screen for you because I want to make sure that we get the, the language part of this. The way James writes this, there are only three options about how to take crown of life. The key word being of and then life after it. Here's the first option. According to the Greek language and the way he uses it here, he could possibly be saying a crown which produces life. In other words, you don't get life unless you have the crown. That doesn't fit. So that one's out. The second one is a crown that emerges from life. Well, that's kind of like the first one, and that doesn't fit, so that one's out, which leaves us with the third option, which is a crown which is life. Now, that makes sense. And one of the reasons that it makes sense for me, well, first of all, because it fits the teaching of Jesus. You know that passage over in Matthew chapter 11, verses 29 through 30? I won't quote the whole thing, but it says something like this. Jesus says, take my yoke upon you. It is easy. Well, do you feel that way when you're going through trials? This is easy. No, that's, that's counterintuitive for us to talk like that, but Jesus says exactly. That's why you hook up with me. Now, I know we like to say we'll hook him up with us, but he's the one driving this thing. Or that other passage, and I'm going to talk about this a little more in just a moment, but John chapter 10, verse 10, where Jesus says the thief comes to steal, to kill, and to destroy. Let me just stop right there for a second and ask, doesn't that sound like what people go through in trials? Their joy is stolen, their peace is gone, their lives are wrecked. Jesus goes on to say, but I have come that you may have life. And then he adds this superlative on the end, this statement that is just pregnant with meaning. I have come that you may have life, and that life, I'll put it in some of the terms of recent American vernacular, that life is awesome, epic. It's beyond what you can even imagine. But you see, the problem that we have is that when we get into trials and we start focusing in on the trial itself and our thinking becomes stinking as we quit living. We let the trial become the dominant feature in the landscape of our lives. And that's a thinking problem. And even though we have hope in Christ that's for today, it's for the living of today, not just some far-off future that we get when we die, but the power of the gospel is present today for us. Unless, of course, we give the trials more brain than they deserve. We have a way of stopping living when we're facing the trials. Just over a year ago, I went to the Sherman and Denison area. My brother-in-law, until the day before that, had lived there. Y'all know the story of that. He's actually one of my high school 
best friends. We had shared an apartment before either one of us got married. We were life friends, and then roughly in the last 10 or 15 years, he married Teresa's sister, and so we became that kind of family. He was already family for us. And we received a phone call in the middle, late part of August last year that Bill had taken his own life. And so within 48 hours of that event, within roughly 24 of getting the phone call, I found myself in the Sherman-Denison area sitting at Bill's desk upstairs in his apartment, looking out over his backyard landscape, his big window across there, and it's a small yard that gave way to scrub oak and you know, some short trees. We live in East Texas, so all trees are short if you're not here. And then beyond that was a lake, and it was a beautiful setting. Isolated backside of this condo area. And, and as I was sitting there, the reason I was sitting at his desk is because I was given the responsibility of trying to work through his computer records to find out how to notify his bank and all that kind of stuff and just figure out for my sister-in-law where, where it all was. So I sat in that environment looking through his computer at the last things that he did on that computer. And the last website that he visited, which was how to pull off the kind of suicide thing that he was contemplating. And it struck me then and it strikes me now how even though the landscape of our life is full of good things, full of hope how we can so focus on the bad stuff and we stop living and when you decide to stop living death is just a heartbeat away so I go back to John chapter 10 verse 10 and Jesus said I have come that you may have life so if you're here today and you're in one of those cycles where the hopelessness of the moment robs you of the ability to see down the road, to hold you into the fight and to be steadfast today. Take Jesus at his word. I've come that I could give you life. I want to give you life. I have, as we're going to celebrate here in just a few moments, I have already given you life. It's not just reserved for down the road when you finally lose that living, then you can come live with me. It stretches from now. It's realized eschatology. Jesus brings life today to you. There's staying power in that. And I, I know that you, if you're in the middle of one of these cycles, I know you're sitting there going, I don't see that. All I see is just darkness everywhere I look. Make a choice in your head that moves into your heart. I'm going to take Jesus at his word. He didn't abandon me. He didn't do all of this for me just to give me eternal life down the road somewhere. It's a quality of life now. There's your hope for getting through this. Is it possible? I mean, is that really possible to do that? To find in the midst of all of that darkness, to find the reality that says... I can do this. Actually, I can't do this at all, but I have resource in my Savior who will get me through. Tommy Dorsey, most of us know the name, great American musician, 
jazz musician to be exact, but also there was a time that he was a revivalist, a music revivalist. And according to the story in 1932, he was living in Chicago and he was about to go down to St. Uh, Louis to do a revival meeting, do the music for whoever was preaching. And his wife, Nettie, was in her last month of pregnancy. And so he talked to her and kissed her goodbye as he started to go down for the better part of a week. And um, he said there was just something about it. He wasn't sure he needed to go, but he loaded up. He had that commitment, so he left. And he got to the edge of town driving his Model A and decided, hey, he realized he had left his music behind. And so he drove back, went to the house to retrieve his music. And when he did, he discovered that Nettie was asleep. And he said, I couldn't shrug off this sense that I needed to stay with her. I did not need to go, but I had this commitment, so I loaded back up and I took off. The next night in St. Louis, in the midst of this revival meeting, it was a happening thing, and he was asked to sing numerous times through the course of the evening. And as he walked off the stage, a Western Union telegraph person handed him a note that simply said, your wife is dead. So he got on the phone, and he called. And the person that he talked to said, she's, she's gone. She's, she's dead. He rushed back, thinking that he would go back to at least have his son, because she died giving birth to that child a month early. He discovered when he got back that the baby had died also. So he moved into this period where he had to deal with the business side of death. He buried both of them in the same casket and said, then I fell apart. I just absolutely fell apart. He said, I felt like God had sold me out. And that stretched on and it became this ongoing struggle for him as we can only imagine. He, he talked about how God's people began to reach out to him and pull him in. And one of them was a professor, a music professor, who invited him over. And one evening, Dorsey was at this professor's office at the university. And he walked over and he sat down in this dark um, practice room. He sat down at the piano and he said, as I sat down and started to play that piano, it's like God showed up. In the midst of all of my pain, in the midst of all of my anguish, he said, I got this sense of peace that was undefinable but very recognizable. And he said, just like, like I was hearing from heaven itself, this song came to me. We know that song as one of the great hymns of our faith. The lyrics of it are, precious Lord, take my hand. Lead me on. Let me stand. I'm tired. I'm weak. I'm worn through the storm, through the night. Lead me on to the light. Take my hand, precious Lord. Lead me home. In the face of the worst of life's trials, Jesus promises you life. A crown of life that he gives to you as you hold on to him. It's not about you being able to work up enough mental strength to gut your way through a trial. It is about you surrendering all control, trusting him to do his best for you. 
maybe not quite on the same line, but close to it. This week, I was dealing with some stuff. I hate going to the doctor, don't you? And it was some of that stuff that for me just kind of rocked me. It's like, okay, here we go again. And I jump in the car and I'm driving down to get my liquid relief, which is Starbucks, okay, so don't... Gotcha. And some smart aleck modern day theologian on the radio starts playing a song that takes me back to this sermon. Now I'm back to the, you know, I got to live through this all week while you just have to suffer to it for 30 minutes. So the song is by, what's this Christian artist name? Medusa? No, Med- Mar- Mar- Marissa? Not Marissa either. I wrote it down here so I wouldn't forget. Mandisa. I like Medusa better. So you know the song that was on the radio from Mandisa, right? I had to spot, uh, yeah, anyway, Shazam it. You're an overcomer. Stay in the fight till the final round. You're not going under. Because God is holding you right now. You might be down for a moment, feeling like it's hopeless. That's when he reminds you that you're an overcomer. Let me correct her bad theology. He is the overcomer. You are his child. You don't inherently carry the gene of overcoming. He is the overcomer. What are you thinking in your trials? If Jesus is not front and center, then I'll promise you it can get better for you if you put him there. Let's pray. So, Father, as we finish this and we transition to the time of remembering your great sacrifice, I know that many of us today face trials. So many that we think through just in the last week or so, given devastating health news, given loss of loved ones, Financial strains, this world just keeps pressing in on us. And we need you. We pray that you would embolden us with your presence so that we might say once more into the fray and we step out into this trial and this struggle in your strength, knowing that you are our hope. When we're at the point of crying out for relief, Father, give us the spiritual wisdom to turn that into a cry for your presence. Thank you for what you've done for us. Thank you for changing lives today. And thank you for not abandoning us to the trials of life. Help us to keep that in mind is our prayer in Christ's name.